and welcome to The Juice and the Squeeze. I'm Julia Strand here with my co-host, Jonathan Peel. All right, Jonathan, uh, it's episode 20. Hooray. Uh, we're well on our way. How uh, how you holding up? Let's do a little uh, little pandemic check-in. Pandemic check-in? Uh, pretty I, good. I, I heard someone say, so how's your pandemic going? Oh. And I was like, well, that's a nice way to start a conversation. I do think there's like a, there's like a whole niche area of greeting cards that if, if Hallmark hasn't gotten in there already, uh, I feel like they really should, right? You know? <laughs> You know, how's your distancing going? Happy, happy pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. Um, we're doing okay. So uh, my wife is a nurse, and uh, um, the other week she was exposed to a COVID-positive patient unbeknownst to her. Uh, the patient was tested later, and because no one has enough um, protective gear, she wasn't particularly well geared up for this. Uh, they weren't anticipating it. So she has no symptoms, uh, which is great. But uh, because we've got little kids and because we're being cautious, uh, she's been self-quarantining uh, most of the day in the bedroom, which, uh, anyway, it's rough on everyone. It's rough on her. It's rough on me. So I've been doing a lot of solo parenting, which has pros and cons, um, but mostly it just, I mean, it's just very busy. Yeah. Um, and I'm very aware. I, I, I don't, I hate saying solo parenting because actually uh, I'm, I'm still getting lots of help and in, in, in that. But every time I... I do more on the solo end of things than less. Um, like my hat just goes off to people who are actually solo parenting uh, all the time. I have no idea mm-hmm. how you guys do it. And I'm, I'm amazed. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, kudos to everyone who does this at all on a regular basis. It's it's tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the so busy thing, it's like, it is, it is so strange to be, so incredibly busy with work stuff because you know i only have like half a day to work because i've watched the kids the other half the day um so the work hours that i have are like so precious and you know condensed and i'm just so super efficient in those like four hours a day that i get um and it's very weird to go from being that efficient to then spending the rest of the day like reading scuppers the sailor dog multiple times <laughs> uh-huh. and you know coloring for hours and uh i i feel like whenever i go from working to momming or vice versa i like i, I feel like i'm gonna get the bends right like it's just too quick a transition from mm-hmm. one extreme to the other yeah transitions um, are tough yeah but you know it's all going fine we're healthy we've got a great setup and so it's i really can't complain are you still doing like social social zoom dates with people not much like a, we've done a couple but um but not really because mostly like when the kids are in bed i work right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um i we, we try to have a, do something fun like one of the weekend nights mm-hmm. um uh we're just you know we're really wild and crazy we do something fun one of the weekend nights uh-huh. um but otherwise evenings are just you know work time yeah yeah. Well, I mean, the nice thing about that plan is at least you can tell it's a weekend a little bit, right? Because that's, yeah, right. that's the other thing is, I mean, I, I, we've said this before, but it continues to be, um, you know, there's just less stuff that distinguishes one day from another, mm-hmm. um, which in some ways, I, I we're going off topic, so we'll, we'll get to our real topic soon. But in some ways, I kind of like it. Um, I mean, it's just kind of just a weird alternate reality where, you know, time has no meaning and days have no meaning and, and your work schedule is sort of very fluid. Um, but it's also it's also drives me crazy. So I, I, I saw a tweet that I got a really big kick out of that said the only days now are trash day and not trash day. Mm, that's a good one. And, and yeah. for you, like special special evening. 
Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, Well, but also on the weekends, so so we we haven't been doing much work on the weekends and just trying to have like actual whole family time. So it's not just, you know, my husband and I like passing each other children in the hallway as we change shifts. Um, But so we've been trying to have, um, you know, good family time on the weekends. And one of the things we've been doing, wait, have I talked about our theme days? I can't remember. I don't think so, because it doesn't. Okay. We just, I only know about your Will It Waffle contest. So that I know about. Okay. Uh, and That's I actually want, I want an update on that, but I don't know anything about your theme days. Okay. Uh, waffle calzones are the best. Like Ooh. thin layer of pizza dough, pizza <laughs> sauce, cheese, another layer of pizza dough on the top. And it just, it's like every piece is like a crispy edge piece. Uh, it's so good. So good. Um, all right. So theme days. I love holidays. I love making a big fuss about holidays. And in an effort to not have every weekend day be the same, we've been electing to have different themes for each Saturday. Um, so the first one that we did was Jimmy Buffett Day, which means that it was a beautiful day. We spent a lot of time outside. The grown-ups drank a lot of margaritas. The kids ran around in swimsuits, and I put uh, seashells in the sandbox and like laid beach towels next to them. And you know, we listened to Jimmy Buffett music, uh-huh. um, and it was awesome. We also had Topsy Turvy Day, where we fed the kids breakfast for dinner and dinner for breakfast, and they napped Ooh. in each other's beds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, what we're just crazy about it, and we had mimosas with dinner uh-huh. and you know whiskey in the morning um <laughs> sounds rough you had, know <laughs> i uh this is making it sound like we are doing more day drinking than we are um and yeah so so it's been fun to have like little things that we can tell the kids you know to get excited about a couple of days early and then all scheme about and mm-hmm. and it's fun so uh, do you have you um come up with this list of days like just off the top of your head or do you have like a, a source for it uh no we've just been we've just been coming up with them i love it okay yeah okay well anyway i'm gonna ask you for a full list later but we don't have to yeah sure over it now <laughs> okay but those two are um, good sorry but those two are good i like those yeah thank you thank I'm, like, you. I'm like i'm like furiously like writing down i'm like you know step one get waffle iron two <laughs> <laughs> two jimmy buffett day every day <laughs> Uh, all right. So, but w- what we are actually here to talk about today is, um, it's our, our third installment in our open science triptych, um, uh, trilogy, trilogy, our open science trilogy. Um, and today we, we're going to talk about, uh, registered reports, which is, um, a new publishing format that is a, a kind of a, a radical departure in some ways from traditional academic publishing. Um, and I am just crazy about, uh, I think it is one of the most promising changes that is happening, um, as part of the kind of open science movement that has started in the last several years. Um, and so I'm eager to share the experience that I have with registered reports and, you know, proselytize about the, the things that, that make them great. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the kind of the, the, the broad overview is that um, in traditional academic publishing, uh, researchers come up with an idea, do a study, analyze the data. Once they've finished all that, they package it all up, write a paper, send it to a journal. The journal peer reviews it and decides if they want to publish it or not. Um, With registered reports, the order of operations kind of changes. So authors come up with an idea. They write a detailed paper that's basically a manuscript that contains an introduction section, a method section, and like an analysis results section. And they do all that before they have done the study. And they submit that document to a journal for peer review prior to collecting any of the data, 
So it's not saying, hey, look at this cool study we did. It's, hey, look at this cool study that we're going to do. Um, and then the the peer review happens on that proposal, on that, you know, on that, on that manuscript that, that they've written. Um, so the journal uh, peer reviews it. I mean, sometimes they get desk rejected and it doesn't get reviewed. But the idea is that if it works, it gets peer reviewed. You know, the peer reviewers will come back and say, you didn't think of this or these things are wrong with it or you need to change this. You know, so it goes through a couple of rounds typically of, of normal peer review. And then after that point, um, if the reviewers liked it and the editor likes it, uh, if they, if they deem that, you know, it is an interesting idea and conducted in a reasonable way and those kinds of things, um, the journal gives what's called an in-principle acceptance or IPA. Um, it's great that it's called an IPA because then it's clear what you celebrate with after you've, uh, after you've gotten it. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, so, and, and, and the great part is that the in-principle acceptance means that the journal agrees to publish this study after you've done it, regardless of the outcomes. So you don't have to get statistical significance. You don't have to find support for your hypotheses. Uh, the journal will publish it regardless of, of what you found. So then once you've got your IPA in hand, um, you, you, do the actual study, you analyze the results, you write up a discussion section, and then you send that whole thing back to the journal. They do another round of peer review and then and then publish it. Mm-hmm. So it is moving the point at which peer review happens from after you have made the mistakes and done things wrong to before you have had the opportunity to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done I've done one, I mean, I've published one registered report um with Violet Brown, uh, uh, as the lead author who was on the show last time. Um, and we had just a terrific experience with it. The, the process of, um, getting peer reviewed before you have done the study, Mm -hmm. uh, really felt like it changed the nature of the peer review process, Mm -hmm. right? You know, sometimes in peer reviews, you get, you get these comments back that, the reviewer is clearly frustrated that you hadn't thought of some detail or you hadn't done something. Um, and you know, and they're like, Oh, why, if, if only you had done X, Y, Z. Um, and, and the, the tone and the spirit of the reviews this time, um, were, were really much more like, Oh, this is good. You know, what can make it better. Ooh, this is, you know, you know, what would really complement this is, mm-hmm. um, and, and a real, it was really like supportive, the the you know the way that it should be the way that it the way that it can be if you haven't already done things wrong um so there are there are a number of um kind of benefits of of registered reports um uh and i i want to kind of compare and contrast this with uh pre-registration that we talked about a couple of a couple of times ago um in which researchers pre-specify all of the decisions that they're going to make um, as, as part of the, as part of the research. Um, but that isn't like tied to the actual acceptance of the article, right? That's just something that you kind of like that they, that they did ahead of time on the side, but not like officially with the journal. Um, so the, the real benefits of registered reports, um, uh, well, there's a few. One is that because researchers have to specify ahead of time exactly what their hypotheses are, um, it, it prevents uh, the, the practice of 
pretending like you anticipated the results, even if you didn't. Um, so we call this harking or hypothesizing after results are known. Um, and, you know, and, and, and it could be that I do a study, I run a bunch of analyses, I find that this one particular analysis uh, is, is statistically significant. Um, you know, so let's say I want to find out if a particular drug is useful for treating migraines. Um, and I find out that it is, but it's only effective for women who are over age 50, whose first name has a a in it or something, you know, mm-hmm. like, like I do a bunch of analyses and I find that there's this one group that, that, uh, that the drug helps for. Um, if I then write up the paper to say, we were really interested in testing the effect of this migraine d- drug on women over 50, named Karen, uh, like, like having, you know, this really like specific set of hypotheses, then if we get support for that hypothesis, it looks much more impressive than if I say, I ran the study, I tried a bunch of different things. And, you know, this one, this one happened to work. It's kind of like really cheap time travel, right? Like, like, having known the results, we're going to go back and then like, make a prediction. It's like, I mean, it's in tons of movies, but like in Back to the Future, right? Like where um, you go through time, you're like, I know who's going to win this baseball game. You know, you win all this money. You're like, well, you know, you're cheating a little bit. Um, Yeah. So um, uh, uh, Jordan Waggy, who's a a professor who's done a lot of great work with open science stuff, um, has a great metaphor about Harking, which is that uh, Babe Ruth's home run would have been much less impressive if he had pointed at the stands after he had hit the ball. (laughs) Right. Right? Like Uh it's only impressive if you call your shots ahead of time. So so one of the things about registered reports is that you you can't hark because you have specified ahead of time what your what your hypotheses are. Right. Um, they also help with uh, help help prevent a statistical practice called called p hacking. Um, p for like you know the, like statistical significance. Um, so uh, p hacking is when you try lots of statistical analyses and then only report the ones that render significant results. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these practices, I mean, p-hacking and harking, like people sometimes talk about them in terms, uh, or talk about them as though they are, you know, researchers sitting in their labs, maniacally cackling and thinking about ways to misrepresent their data. Um, but I think that the vast majority of p-hacking and harking happens, um, with good intentions and even like outside of conscious awareness. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so if for instance, I'm doing my migraine study and I see that the uh, that the the drug uh, do- doesn't actually help treat headaches, but but it's very close to t- statistical significance. Um, it might be totally reasonable to like look at those data and say, oh, you know, I analyzed the data, the effect was not significant, but you know, I forgot that I, I didn't check um, whether or not I should exclude the participants who didn't make it all the way to the end of the study, right? Like maybe the people who dropped out early uh, are kind of adding noise to the data because they didn't get the drug for long enough, and if they'd stayed in, you know, and so if I exclude those participants who didn't make it all the way to the end of the study, and the effect like pops into being statistically significant, I might say, oh, boy, good thing, good thing I thought to exclude those people. Now we've got a statistically significant effect. Now we can publish it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I and I think a lot of times it's like very easy to talk ourselves into making those kinds of choices. Yep. Right. And like and kind of being selectively critical of the data when it's not statistically significant. Um, and and so. Yeah, I, um, when we talk about p-hacking and harking and these other kinds of questionable research practices, um, 
I I do not at all think it's necessary to ascribe, um, you know, malfeasance on the part of the researchers. I I think a lot of it happens unintentionally and and even unconsciously. Well, here's the um, right. So so especially for I guess for both of them really, but especially for for Harking, um, you know, I've heard it explicitly. Um, talked about in the context of communication, and and you, Julia, you and I have talked before about how like communicating our findings is is really important as scientists. And so the logic is sort of um, if you try ten things and one of them works, and you in your heart believe that that thing is true, then you want to tell people about that one thing that worked. But if you take like twenty pages explaining the nine things that didn't work. It gets very confusing, right? It's like I'm reading page after page of all the stuff you tried, and then it's like, oh, and it didn't work. So we tried another thing. And so the the actual thing that you think as a scientist is important to communicate gets buried in all of the logic is the thing you actually think the world should know gets buried in all this other stuff. And people are never going to read your paper. Or if they do, they're not going to understand it. And so writing the, um, the paper in such a way that makes your true finding you know, that you think is true, clear, uh, mm-hmm. is, is, it, is a benefit to communication. And to do that, you know, you, we, we can never tell literally every detail. We always make some decisions. And so this is just on that continuum that why tell about the nine things you don't believe anymore? Just tell people about the thing you care about. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's funny. I mean, 2020, uh, you know, as I'm saying this, it, it, I can I can see how it might seem silly to some people. Um, but I think that's relatively recent. I think a lot of our scientific history, um, I mean, still today, but but certainly before the last 10 years, I mean, this, I think, was pretty common practice. I mean, you know, journals have page limits. You were publishing an actual print journal. You didn't have room to put in all this stuff anyway. So I think there were a lot of pressures, right? I mean, there, there was like the glamour pressure and there was like, look how smart I was. I predicted that only this subsection of the population had the effect. But then it's also just like practical constraints too, like prohibit, um, historically have prohibited like being as thorough as maybe we could be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and and there's also a component about um, uh, like selective scrutiny of data, right? Mm-hmm. That like if you uh, are looking at a correlation between two variables and you look at a scatter plot and you see that um, like one of the participants is is way, way off the line is like a clear outlier in a way that does not support your hypotheses. Um, we're much more likely to like go in and look closely and be like, huh, who was that mm-hmm. participant? Right. And then say, oh yeah, I remember that guy. He showed up late and was slurring his words. Maybe he was drunk. We should right. exclude him. Right. right. Or, or, you know, whereas if you have someone that falls like beautifully on the line in the way that you're expecting, you're, you're less like critical of that one. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I, and I think to the point about like page limits and trying to tell a clear story. Um, and also that I, that I think um, it is only recent that people have come to understand what a big deal p hacking and harking are there's mm-hmm. there's a great um there's a great quote so there's a wonderful paper called called false positive psychology um, that was um, my favorite paper of all time, even. <laughs> um, and in the in the follow up, the authors uh, will include a link in the show notes said uh, they were talking about these kind of questionable research practices like p hacking and harking. And they said, um, uh, hold on, let me pull it up. By the way, just as Julia's doing that, so I already put a link to the false positive psychology in the show notes because I knew it would come up. It's also one of my favorite articles. Um, 
And I thought that was, it was really eye-opening for me, uh, you know, at the, especially at the time reading it for the first time, but even when I go back to it now, because you can sort of see, you can, you can sort of see the evolution of how these things happen, but also how they're ridiculous. Okay, so they said in in talking about um, these these questionable research practices, uh, everybody knew it was wrong, but they thought it was wrong the way it's wrong to jaywalk. Simulations revealed that it's wrong the way it's wrong to rob a bank. Mm-hmm. You know, so so these kinds of like subtle choices, the researcher degrees of freedom that that researchers have of like who do we exclude, what analysis do we do, um, these have the power to systematically affect the results of our studies in huge ways, um, in huge and and, and one-directional ways. Like, Mm -hmm. what these lead to are false positives happening in the literature, right? Findings that are not true showing up in the literature looking looking like they are true. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the wonderful things about registered reports is that you you can't p-hack because you are specifying ahead of time exactly what analyses you're going to run, and you can't hark because you're specifying what your hypotheses are ahead of time as well. Mm-hmm. So one of the, I mean, we, we touched on this again before, but it's worth coming back to. Um, one of the, the complaints, criticisms, objections that uh, I often hear, um, you know, for example, on, on Twitter or, or whatever, um, is that, you, you know, there's so much you learn about your data from exploring it and doing these exploratory analysis and, and doesn't, and doesn't pre-registration constr- or, or registered reports, you know, specifying all your analyses ahead of time, doesn't that constrain you? And aren't we missing out on, on stuff we could learn, you know, because of that? Um, and, and so what are, what are your thoughts on that? I have thoughts, but what are your thoughts yeah, on that yeah. criticism? Um, so, so there's nothing in pre-registration or registered reports that prevents you from doing exploratory analyses. So if you do a registered report, you can still like report additional analyses that you do in a different section clearly read, clearly uh, described as exploratory rather than as the, the pre-registered ones. Um, and so, so I think it does not at all limit data exploration. What it does is make it clear which of the analyses were planned ahead of time and which were found via, you know, messing around with, with the data afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, another great quote, I think is uh, Uri Simonson said, um, pre-registration does not tie a researcher's hands. It uncovers a reader's eyes. Mm. So it's not preventing you from doing anything. It's just making it more clear to other people when you made, when in the process you, you made those decisions. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to say, uh, so that's exactly, that's my answer too. Um, and then people, anyway, people really, people who, uh, Oh, I hate to paint with such a broad brushstroke, but I, in my experience, all of these complaints come from people who have never tried it um, mm-hmm. and, and are worried about trying it. And so, again, that's I mean, that's a reasonable thing to be scared of something you haven't done before. But also, like, just try it once and see see what it's like, and then and then complain about it if you don't like it. So, uh, in my experience, the couple of of things that we've done that have been pre registered, it really is not very difficult to have one paragraph saying, "Here's all the stuff we said we would do." And then you have a new paragraph and say, in a series of exploratory analyses, we did X, Y, and Z. And, mm-hmm. and, and like, it's not that awkward. It's not very difficult. The reader understands. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Right. And then yeah. if you discover the, the cure for whatever in your exploratory reports, people will still think it's cool. And then mm-hmm. you can go follow it up with the registered report or, you know, what I mean, mm-hmm. something where you've actually said, okay, have, having analyzed the data 8,000 ways, we found the one way we think is the best. We're going to do it again and see if that works again. And then you verify it. Yeah. Um, so, and, and people, I think people, you know, readers and reviewers are very sympathetic to this because, 
um, by and large, there is a lot of support for pre-registration, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Even people who are grumpy about it, I think, don't think it's like a horrible thing. They just don't want their hands tied. Mm-hmm. Um, but in other words, reviewers and, and readers, I think, like, it's not they just ignore stuff that you didn't pre-register. They just understand what you thought of ahead of time and what you didn't. It's just, just mm-hmm. it's like, it's like a holding us accountable for what yep. we actually, like what we thought when. So if we yep. actually thought something ahead of time, write it down. If you didn't think it ahead of time, add it later. Mm-hmm. Like that to me seems not a, not a big barrier. I agree. Um, all right. Here's another thing that registered reports can help with. Um, and that is, uh, um, so, so, okay. <laughs> Like I'm excited about these things that I want to share. Uh-huh. Okay, so one of one of the things that has um, plagued a lot of uh, psychological research lately um, has uh, not lately throughout throughout the history of the discipline um, is is inadequate statistical power to test for the effects of interest. So if you have uh, a study that has a really small sample size, you're trying to detect some small effect, and you only have I don't know twelve people in in each of your groups. Um, it is uh, if if you were to find a statistic statistically significant effect from those data um it is it is highly unlikely to actually be true out you know in the real world um and so registered reports one of the requirements of registered reports is that you include a very detailed power analysis um about exactly how how what kind of data you're going to get how many observations how many participants you know what your what your rule is for stopping to ensure that your study is that the analyses of interest are are adequately powered Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that's a way of also helping to avoid having false positives in the literature, uh, because you're not likely to have studies with tiny sample sizes. I mean, and that's certainly something you can do in any study, right? That is not like unique to registered reports, right. but the fact that, you know, there's kind of like that the gatekeeping happens before data collection, um, means that that can be enforced. Well, so here's the thing, um, just a, a slightly different perspective on this, but, um, something I struggle with, and this is a whole, this is a whole other show is as a reviewer, what kinds of things do we care about? What do we talk about? Um, but just uh, anyway, I'll, I'll make this point rather than the whole open, the whole can of worms. Um, uh, a lot of times I have a little internal checklist of things I would like to see. And one of them might be a power analysis. So many papers do not include anything about how they came up with sample size. Um, and so of course, a- and after the data are collected, right? Uh, I'm reviewing the paper and they, they tested X number of people. And I think it's too few. Uh, a lot of times it isn't practical to go back and test more people. And, and, you know, you're halfway, you're, you're done with the study. And so I, then I become one of those reviewers who grumbles about things that, that you can't change and it gets, it gets kind of awkward. So a couple of benefits of registered reports, a lot of the things that are sort of, that most journals require to, to do a stage one registered report are things I would want to see anyway. So, yeah, yep. so, so I'll, I'll just pick on the, the power analysis or sample size. Are there other things too? But that's a great one. That I mean, my understanding from like reading what statisticians say is generally we should really think about this a lot. And generally, most people don't. Uh, and, that, and that includes me, especially, you know, past me. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, anyways, not, not trying to shame anyone, but just like if we want to do better science, this is important. And, and many people don't think about it or don't document what they thought about. And, and it would be good for science if we did it more. And this is a format that basically forces you to do that, which on the one hand, it's a, it's a quote unquote, like a hoop to jump through. And so you might feel like it's a barrier to doing your, 
your research, but actually if it's one that helps you, uh, probably in the long run it's good. And as a reviewer, I love it because then you know the the, the format has sort of forced you to do something that's probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And there's lots. Of, I mean, this again, this is also another episode. Like, how do you determine sample size? There's a million ways to do it, and many of them are actually quite flexible. But it's just um, documenting the flexibility you want and thinking about it, mm-hmm. um, which takes time and it's not always easy. But I think it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, uh, again, just picking on sample size and, and power and stuff like that is, again, after the fact, um, it's very frustrating as a reviewer to say, well, if you had run twice as many people, this would have been interesting or whatever, whatever the mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. is. And it's like, oh, it's too late. The, the student left and, and the equipment broke and we can't we literally can't run anyone else. <laughs> what do you do? But if you're talking about it ahead of time, then you then you can have a real conversation about it. So I think a lot of these like really fundamental aspects of experimental design that do differ across lab um, really benefit from discussion and the registered report lets you, lets you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask, so, and you touched on this briefly, but what's the, like, what's your thinking about pre-registration? So, and, and just to recap again, uh, anyone can do a pre-registration. It's not tied to a journal. It's really just making a time stamped public um, document that says that the things you're going to do to, to make it clear what you thought ahead of time and what you didn't. So I could do a pre-registration today for a study, and then a year from now I can send it to any journal I want, and I just have a link that says, oh, we pre-registered this last year. Here's what we said last year. Um, a registered report is tied to a specific journal, uh, and so you have to go through this process at a journal, and you may or may not get your paper accepted. So what, what's your thinking on like pros and cons? When would you do one versus the other? Or or how do you navigate that? Because, you know, they're related, but they're different. Yeah. So the, the key differences that I see are that um, pre-registration. Uh, OK, so the key differences are that that um, you can pre-register a study that is terribly designed and underpowered and no journal will ever accept. Right. So just because mm-hmm. you have pre-registered it doesn't give it any like mark of quality. It mm-hmm. just gives it some transparency so that you can see just how good or, or bad it is. Um, whereas registered reports, you're getting peer review on it before you do it. And so those studies are likely to be more um, methodologically sound and theoretically grounded because there's been peer review ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other big difference is uh, is that the study has been like accepted by the journal before the data are in, um, which helps reduce publication bias. Mm -hmm. So if you pre-register a study, render non-significant results, do something wrong in the study, you know, any of the above, um, it could still never get published, right? No journal, it may be that Mm -hmm. no journal ever, ever wants it. Um, and so what is, what is the, the real benefit of registered reports um, are that it helps overcome publication bias. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the vast, vast majority of published studies uh, tend to find statistically significant results. Um, the paper that I just pulled up showed that uh, over 90% of papers in psychology report a statistically significant effect. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you just look at that, you might think, wow, those psychologists sure are good at uh, knowing just the right questions to ask and right. just the right hypotheses to have. We're so they're, smart. We have good intuition. Right 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. Way to go them. Um, but actually, um, what is probably happening is is one of two things. One is, um, or some combination of two things. One is that um, 
there are lots of studies that are conducted. The ones that find a significant effect get published. The ones that do not find a statistically significant effect uh, get put in somebody's file drawer and and never see the light of day. Mm-hmm. Um, so it may be that we're just seeing a super biased sample of the research that's been conducted. Uh, the scarier thought is that those non-statistically significant effects are not sitting in a file drawer, but instead they have been p-hacked into statistical significance and mm. are in the literature masquerading as statistically significant effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the beauty of registered reports is that publication is no longer tied to statistical significance. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great new uh, preprint that's out that has that Anne Scheel is the, is the lead author. Um, and they analyze, we now have enough registered reports in the literature um, that they, they analyzed the, uh, the, the rates at which registered reports uh, find support for their hypotheses uh-huh. um, against the rates at which non-registered reports find support for their hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that preprint, they report that um, of the traditional articles in like the, the standard papers, um, 96% of those got found positive results for the first hypothesis tested in each paper. Um, and in registered reports, uh, that, that rate was 44%. Interesting. Um, and so I think it is, I think it is incredibly telling that when you remove statistical significance as a prerequisite for publication, the likelihood of attaining statistical significance mm-hmm. goes down, right? Um, and and you can't point at those cases and say, well, it's hard to interpret those like null results because maybe the researchers did something wrong and that's why they didn't get the effect. Um, because these are these are cases in which you know a panel of peer, peer reviewers, experts have already agreed that that they were doing it right. Mm-hmm. So, so it seems to me that like the, those those rates seen in um, in Anschil's paper. Um, are are probably much more like the rates at which people actually find support for their hypotheses. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, we're, we're going off a little bit on a tangent, but just to just to throw out there, I mean, I've definitely been in the the situation, especially when like starting a new paradigm or in like, either a totally new area of research or like something I haven't tried before. Right? I thought I want to I want to figure out effect X. Um, sometimes I'll try by trying to replicate what someone else has published. Sometimes I'll think logically this thing should work, you know, a particular way and I'll try it and it doesn't work. Um, and, and, and those don't get published. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Partly sometimes those like early explorations are not done as thoroughly as they could have been. I mean, maybe Mm -hmm. it's a one year student project where we try something, um, Maybe it's, uh, you know, we run a, a small number of people because just to see if it's going to work. These sort of like pilot pilot study type things. Um, and, and in a way, that's like a separate category because those were not, you know, maybe those wouldn't see the light of day uh, anyway. But but the point is, um, you know, quite often, if we're trying to learn how, how to study a particular thing, it takes a little bit of experience and it takes a few tries to do it. And that means that all of those early tries then typically get lost to history. Right, because we we tried something, it didn't it didn't work for whatever reason. Like people got tired because it was too long, or or the instructions were weird, or you know we've kind of we've iterated and improved it. Um, but those are potentially useful data points, and so I think um, you know for me, what what kind of registered reports pushes us towards is being a little bit more thorough with some of those tries, 
um, and either either more careful about what we do try or being more thorough about the stuff that doesn't work so that we can also share that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so if you were, if you ran 10 people in 50 different paradigms and then found the one that worked and only did that, you would lose all the information about the other 49. Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's we're we're not quite that bad, but, but you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it kind of forces you to be thorough because you're like, Hey, this isn't just like a one-off thing. We might, or we might, or might not publish. This is like a real thing that's going to get reviewed and we're going to get feedback on. And we're going to like find out what the answer is and, and either way is okay. And I think, and I think part of the danger too is that you know if you're in some new line of research and you run a couple pilot studies, you try out a few things and they don't work as expected, those get file drawered. But yep. if by some chance those happen to produce the results that you expect, then then you would publish those, right? And you say, mm-hmm. oh wow, we figured it out right away. Far we great scientists, you know. And 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 so the, anytime there's a situation where the study is only going to get published if it renders one pattern of results, then of mm-hmm. course that what's going to show up in the literature is, is right. you know, that expected pattern of results. Well, and isn't that, I mean, well, I'm sure people have looked at this, but my intuition is there are some of these um, well-known findings in, in whatever field where the first lab to publish it found X. And then subsequently other people say, oh, it's actually hard to replicate that. But those failed replications are harder to publish because everyone's like, oh, exactly. but you've, you've gone against this first paper that we all trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so again, the registered report gets around that because it doesn't matter what you found. It's about your your logic and your setup and your methods. And that way, you know, you're, you're free to find whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so just going back a little bit to um, like, not theoretically, but literally in your lab, when you're running a study or you're starting a new study, do you like how early on do you decide whether to do nothing versus pre-registration versus the registered report? Like, do you have like, you know, criteria that help push you one way or the other? Yeah. So we, we always pre-register. Um, and so the question is like, do we just do the normal pre-register or do we, do we do it as a registered report? Um, and the, the way that we have made decisions about registered reports, um, so far is, is this a, a question that, um, uh, is going to be interesting and tell us something no matter how it turns out. Mm-hmm. Right. Like sometimes if you're looking for some effect and you get the effect, it means one interesting thing. And if you don't get the effect, it means a different interesting thing. Um, and, and and those are the best kinds of studies. Right. But but there are also some where it's like we're trying to, like, test the limits of these this effect or we're trying to, like, you know, push it and see, like, the, the, the boundary conditions. Um, mm-hmm. And so if we can demonstrate the effect, it's really interesting and it means something. If we can't demonstrate it, it means maybe we you know, maybe mm-hmm. it's not there, but maybe we're not using the right paradigm or something. And mm-hmm. I feel like those those cases where um, it's not clear what the results would mean if they if your hypotheses are not supported, that those can be trickier to do as registered reports. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've done we've done one registered report so far. We're currently writing the stage one um, of of a second one. Um, but I would love to move toward having more of my research be done as registered reports. Um, it's a it's a particularly nice time for working on them right now because we can't mm-hmm. collect data in person mm-hmm. right now, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that's you know one of the things that's kind of has has made us made us want to be working on another one right now. But but I anticipate doing doing many more in the future. I mean, for me, it's sort of um, there's like an internal culture shift. I'm sure that's the wrong word, but like in my own brain. Because I'm so used to not doing registered reports that that doing that, I mean, probably the total amount of time, if I had to guess, is not that much different between a yep. registered report and not. 
If anything, it might be faster for a registered report because you can address some reviewer comments ahead of time. And because a lot of the journals that run those seem to be like really on top of things, I'm sure mm-hmm. there are exceptions. But um, so I think in real life, it probably doesn't take time. But if I have a, if I have a brilliant idea today, as soon as as soon as I stop recording the podcast, and I think I am ready to collect online data tomorrow, um, <laughs> if you know if I want to do that, I can pre-register something tonight and start data collection tomorrow. But mm-hmm. if I want to do a registered report, I have to not you know I have to formulate everything into words. I have to write the paper. I have to submit it. It'll be you know a month or two or three before I start data collection. So there mm-hmm. definitely is like. When you have the, um, you know, when you get the peer review changes, and that also means when you have the delays in the process that are out of your control changes. Yeah. And so I think, you know, so intellectually, I, I'm like on board with that. It's worth it. It probably isn't a big deal. But emotionally, I, I, I still fight against that a little bit. So I'm trying to like retrain myself to think a little bit bigger picture um, and just kind of plan, you know, reorganize the way that I plan a project to think more you know, around that timetable, but I'm not there yet. And, you know, that, that, um, that getting collect, getting to start collecting data right away is like, is like one marshmallow now, but getting an IPA and then not having to worry about statistical significance is like Mm -hmm. two marshmallows later. Right. So there's like a, Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, and, 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 well, so a couple of, a couple of other thoughts. So I do think about Again, I've heard other people worry about if you have a student who has a very tight timetable, you know, is this going to hurt them? Um, and actually, I, again, with some exceptions, but my guess is probably not unless you're super last minute or whatever. But like in the if, if you're planning ahead a little bit, you probably end up saving time because you get to address reviewer comments. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that I imagine the stage two you know, it should be relatively quick or relatively minor comments because they've already signed off on everything. So, yep. so usually a manuscript in my, in my experience goes through several rounds of review, usually two, sometimes three, hardly ever one. Um, and so you still have multiple rounds of review, but, but, you know, you're doing more of the work up front, which means the later ones are going to be easier. Um, and having a, a stage one acceptance also is a great thing for a, for a student to have too, right? Because they, oh boy. They have some, I mean, you know, so some some validation, right? That they're they're this thing that they want to do is good, and they can like relax and not worry about how are the day going to turn out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I if I'm on a hiring committee or some kind of evaluation committee, and I see registered reports on people's CVs, I will count that as, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know, I'm not going to put right. a number as how many other publications it is, but like that is that is so much better than a regular publication mm-hmm. in my view. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is. Uh, and I've heard this uh, anecdotally. So again, my lab has not done a registered report yet, although we've we're, we're close. <laughs> we're on the cusp. Um, but I've heard from lots of people um, that the feedback you get is actually very useful, right? And mm-hmm. so it actually. So a lot of times we respond to reviewers, and especially because the study's already done, if we can't change things, it doesn't actually improve the science. It just means right. we, we 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 add another reference to to make our framework more complete or something like but pitching if, it differently yeah right exactly you know maybe it's more accurate or something but it hasn't really fundamentally changed the thing we found which is frustrating right. uh, but with registered reports you're like hey actually if someone has a good suggestion this could be a better study mm-hmm. um, and to me that seems like a huge like it's not undersold because people do recognize that but but by the people who are anti-registered reports it does seem like they're missing out the huge benefit this could be 
Yeah. So the, the one that we did, um, the, the reviewers, um, pointed out rightly so that, uh, we needed to add an additional experiment, um, that would, you know, kind of help resolve the, whatever. It's not interesting to explain, but like another experiment mm-hmm. would make it better. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it really did. Like it is mm-hmm. a much better, more thorough study because we included that experiment and we hadn't thought of that, you know, mm-hmm. like you bring right. other pr- smart people on board and they think of other things. So, yep. Yep. No, I like it a lot. All right. So if you are sold and you are interested in uh, doing registered reports, um, I would point you to the wonderful resources that are available on the Center for Open Science website, cos.io slash rr. That has a list of the 242 journals that currently offer registered reports. Um, It also has a tab uh, called Resources for Editors um, that has a lot of information about how to start implementing registered reports at journals. So I have sent these resources to the editors of journals that I publish in saying, hey, you should also publish, you should also start accepting registered reports. Here's how you do it. Here are the templates. Here's, you know, how you, uh, the instructions you give to reviewers. Um, they have really just a wonderful, like, list of resources to make it easy to help journals start start implementing registered reports. Um, and the, and um, Open Science Framework, or the Center for Open Science also has, you know, um, templates and examples of other, you know, stage one registered reports you can look at, you can look mm-hmm. at for a guide too. Yeah. Okay. I think we should wrap it up because I have another, I have, I have another oh, meeting. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. Well, thanks so much for, uh, thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time. All right. Bye everybody. Bye.